Beetlejuice. 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 It's showtime. Welcome to the Beetlejuice Minute, where we discuss Tim Burton's Beetlejuice minute by minute. I'm your host, Julianne Fay, actress and owner of CinemaBliss.com, and my co-host today is Barry Rathbun. I am not an actress. I am more involved in the sound part of making movies. Hey, everybody. It is Minute 45, and on this minute, we are starting with Delia's cooking, or at least her chopping of onions. She's really stressed about her agent bringing over a magazine editor. And she thinks that Lydia's ghost photos are totally wasting her time, even though I'm pretty sure this is pre-Photoshop, but whatevs. And the Maitlands are trying to look through the handbook again when something in the model catches Beetlejuice's eye. You mean Beetlejuice catches their eye. Oh, yeah, sorry, Barbara's (laughs) eye. I put B for Barbara, and I totally read Beetlejuice. (laughs) Honest mistake. That voice you just heard is our new guest for this week, Mr. Christopher R. Mim. He's a writer, director, filmmaker, sometimes actor of uh, movies from the Mimiverse. Chris, do you want to like introduce yourself to our fans and tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, you did a fantastic job right there, but I can, I can, I can get deeper than that, I suppose. Yes, I'm a writer, director, editor, all around. I was going to say all around personality, but I'm really not. I don't know. I make movies, uh, and I do them in a very specific style, and that is uh, I make, for lack of a better way to describe it, new, old, good, bad movies, which is to say they're done up like the B-movies of the 1950s, uh, and they're as authentic as I can get to it, so therefore that you get the new, old. But they're also cheesy and, you know, goofy, like the drive-in cinema of the 50s and 60s, uh, and that's where you get good, bad movies, like, you know, Plan 9 from Outer Space. The kind of thing that inspired uh, other filmmakers like, say, Tim Burton. Ah. So I make movies. See, that, that worked. I've made 11 movies in 11 years. I'm currently working on number 12, and um, I'm very excited to be on your podcast. Uh, I was supposed to be on it very early on, uh, and we had some technical issues, I believe, uh, and now I'm finally here, 45 minutes in. Yay! Yay. Well, you picked, you picked a good week, I think. Yeah, you picked an I, excellent week. I agree. I agree. <laughs> yes, Tim Burton. Um, I met the screenwriter actually at at the Austin Film Festival of Tim Burton's Ed Wood film. And for those of you who don't know who Ed Wood is, he made the the old bad movies, not the new bad right. good old. I've got that he's all the, messed up. He's the master <laughs> of just uh, he's the master of terrible B cinema from the fifties, right? And I use I use the word terrible in a good way. He's also the master of stock footage too. He really is. Oh, Ed Wood's got a ton of fans. So, and of course, and Tim Burton was a fan, and Tim Burton did a movie called Ed Wood. So, you guys who are Beetlejuice fans who have not yet checked that out, you should check that out. That seems a travesty if you're a fan of Beetlejuice to the point that you're listening to the Beetlejuice Minute, but you haven't seen Ed Wood. Very. I mean, <laughs> Ed, Ed, Wood, Ed Wood is a fantastic film. Uh, it's actually one of my inspirations for what it is I do. I don't know if I've ever really said that much, but it is true. Uh, I'm a huge Tim Burton fan from back in the day because of G- uh, because of Beetlejuice, actually, because I saw it in a theater when I was a kid. But then seeing Ed Wood really inspired me to to do a little, you know, to pursue film the way I make movies. I love that. See, we're so glad to have We're so honored to have you here today. Indeed, sir. Indeed. Yeah, we should like totally edit in some clapping and cheering. Go ahead. 
do that later. I'll put it in post. Excellent. A filmmaker's favorite words. I will fix it in post. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, smacks forehead. So moving on to Beetlejuice, minute 45. um, I just want to mention that, of course, uh, this is the first time Delia showed any interest in the kitchen, sort of. I mean... She could be doing like something I did. I went, I was once invited to a place, a party where I knew there'd be a lot of really good chefs there. <laughs> so I went down to the local Albertsons, which is a little grocery store where I live and got this little two bite pies. They're little lemon pies, but they're only like two bites big and chopped up a bunch of, um, strawberries and sprinkled a bunch of powdered sugar on there. And I actually got two people asking me for the recipe. So I kind of, after having our so discussion you lied. about, you're just yeah, telling us you lied. <laughs> totally. And the fact that we kind of know that Delia is kind of allergic to the kitchen from things that were said earlier, I can't help but thinking she's just chopping up a bunch of onions and just to make it smell like she's been in the kitchen all day. She's going to sprinkle some somewhere in some little dish that's really made out of a package. So you're thinking it's the scene from Always with uh, Holly Hunter dancing around with all of the pre-packaged food, but making it look like she's been cooking everywhere? Precisely. <laughs> I think her character could be that she's just such a... She's so overly ambitious and focused on herself and her quote-unquote art that she seems like she'd probably be one of those... She would make an effort to to actually make something good, but only to impress, you know, to hell with her family. Yeah, she she also... I mean, she does kind of look like she knows what she's doing. I mean, the way she's chopping them... When I first saw the minute, it looked almost like she was, you know, doing that. I'm chopping this to because I'm very, very, very frustrated, very, very anxious. But uh, in looking how she moves around, she probably actually really does know her way around, but she just doesn't have time or doesn't want to. And perhaps yeah. that's more just Catherine O'Hara. Maybe she just really knows how to cook. And so it was just like, you know, second nature in that she's like, well, if I'm going to be doing this, I'll, I'll do it right. I'm, I'm, re- I'm rethinking my faking it with the onion smell. <laughs> but see, but see, she is, but she is kind of, she is kind of faking it though, you know? I mean, because... She would only be putting this much effort into it because it would serve her purpose as opposed to, you know, just like, I'm going to make a nice, comforting meal for my, you know, family. Right, because the rest of the time they they eat Saskatchewan. What was it? Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. They eat part. They eat, they eat a part of Canada. Lots of food. Yes. <laughs> and little little cartons, little Asian cartons. Canada in a carton. Right. <laughs> that sounds you know, delicious. Um, there is something interesting about this minute of the film, and it has to do with Catherine O'Hara. And I, I, I talked to Julie earlier about this particularly because it always struck me as, as interesting. While she's talking to uh, Winona Ryder, she doesn't really look at her. She does this thing where she closes her eyes uh, in a way that seems weird and somewhat unnatural. Like she's trying to use just closing her eyes to make a point. If you watch it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, she's doing this thing uh, where she'll be talking, and she's looking away, and then she'll look, sort of look at Lydia as if she's looking at her, but her eyes, she, she closes her eyes and keeps them shut. And it's really, it's really weird, right? Uh, oh, totally and it, weird. And it stuck, I, it stuck out even, you know, the many times I've seen it, uh, as just like, why, why is she doing that exactly? And it makes her character seem kind of, I don't know, it makes her a little more annoying, I think, uh, in, in a, in a, it feels like she's kind of being dismissive, and it's almost like an, an extended eye roll, almost, you know, where she's just like, and you can feel her frustration. Now, the reason I bring that up specifically is that some years later, Catherine O'Hara appeared in 
Waiting for Guffman, which, uh, you know, the Christopher Guest movie about um, small town actors in a theater production. Right. And uh, if people haven't seen that movie, they need to see that movie. It skewers theater and, you know, in and small town theater and egos and just actors. and, And it just it really it's a it's a funny movie. It's ridiculous, but it's funny. And in that movie, Catherine O'Hare is playing an actor who's married to Eugene Levy. And they're doing one, a little sit-down interview because, you know, it's a mockumentary. And uh, Catherine O'Hara says a whole thing about how she wants to do and learn how to do less is more acting, right? And her description of it is just bondo. It's just weird. Um, but what she describes in uh, her idea, her character's idea of what less is more acting is, she goes on to describe exactly the way she, she's like, well, cause I'm, I, I'm, you know, she's like, well, I'm looking at them, but I'm closing my eyes like this. And then you look away. Uh, and then when you turn back to talk to them, you close your eyes again. It's the exact same thing she actually does in that scene in Beetlejuice. And I noticed that when I saw Waiting, Gu- Waiting for Guffman and I really liked that movie and I really like Beetlejuice. And I, that, that stuck out like, Hey, I swear she does that in Beetlejuice. And there's the proof. You, you can find uh, both clips on, on, on YouTube, but it's like, it's really, it's really interesting that she's describing the method of acting she's using in Beetlejuice almost as a confusing, purposely confusing joke. <laughs> a really, really deep cut. Right. And, <laughs> and that was a, a long description of it. But if you get a chance, I, I encourage people to check it out because it's, it's kind of, I don't know, illuminating as to whether or not she's kind of serious maybe in Waiting for Guffman, but playing it comedically in a way that maybe, I don't know, maybe she tried to describe how she was acting in that scene to someone and it never made sense. So she ad-libbed that into Waiting for Guffman because it comes off as very nonsensical, but fun. We'll totally anyway. include that link. We'll totally include that link um, beneath the podcast today. <laughs> so look for that. Look for that link on Beetlejuice.com. Beetlejuiceminute.com. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sorry. well, you own Beetlejuice.com. No, Thanks, That's amazing. We have to buy that. <laughs> oh, crud. Good, good luck getting budget. a hold of that one. <laughs> We're on a budget here. <laughs> you know, maybe you can spell it like uh, it's on, you know, Beetlejuice's grave marker. Uh, I don't know. Astronomy site might have taken that one. Uh, or or an enterprising Beetlejuice fan. You don't know. Hey, you guys, buy buy our Beetlejuice mug so we can buy Beetlejuice.com. Just saying. <laughs> here you go. Um, but I, I noticed the, uh, the disassociativeness. Disassociativeness? Is that sure. a word? Um, it isn't. It's a, it's the dismissive, a good, good one. It's a, it is a good one, isn't it? <laughs> the dismissiveness of her eye contact as she kind of disassociates herself from Lydia because she is her stepmom. It's almost like Delia's weird in her way and either she's weirded out by Lydia's gothness, but I don't think she would be, or more likely, she sees a little bit of herself in Lydia, but she doesn't want to because she's the stepmom, kind of like a, you know, so she disassociates herself from her by not looking at her and being very dismissive. Plus, it could be a competition. Exactly. Of, because of who's, who's weirder. <laughs> yes, precisely. She doesn't want to be. Stop taking all of my attention, you know. I'm the weird one in this family. You can't be worse. <laughs> exactly. We only have one artiste. That's what I was trying to explain. We can only have one artiste in the family. Which That's is a right. shame. Because as her stepmom, they could have bonded, but instead it's become a, become a competition. Exactly. All right. I have a story about um, when Adam... Okay, so well, after actually, they're... Hold on, hold oh, on. wait. 
before we before we get to Adam, I have well, another I comment. Say, there's a few there are a few things in here. Um, first of all, the line that uh, that she says about you know all the people are coming here, of everyone who has been you know everyone who has been here has been an Vanity Fair except you. Well, of course now that's not true. <laughs> oh, not only right. that, but both Catherine O'Hara and Winona Ryder have been to the Oscar party of Vanity Fair's hosting for many years. I don't know if they were there at the same time one year, but uh, yeah. It's just kind of funny. That nostalgic moment <laughs> brought to you by Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I also love, before we move on, I, I just realized I love the irony of Delia talking about um, how she doesn't want to be embarrassed while she's wearing her husband's sweater like a pair of pants. <laughs> I don't know if y'all noticed that, but that apron is really a sweater worn upside down, held up by suspenders. Yep. And Yeah, she is so concerned about, you know, don't you dare tell others about me. For someone who's really concerned with her appearance, she wears gloves on her head. She wears a sweater as some weird britches. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, so Chris, as a filmmaker yeah. uh, and Barry as a cosplayer, I have a question for both okay. of you. <laughs> What's the most original use for an item of clothing that you've ever used? Like instead of using something as a as a shirt, have you ever used it for something else? Barry, I know you've done strange stuff with your cosplay. You yeah, go not first. Not that strange. Usually it's just like women's boots because they don't seem to like Renaissance boots and guys for some reason. I guess belt. Ooh, what size shoe? What size shoe do you wear in a woman's shoe? Uh, I, I have to look. I don't know. <laughs> but some of the boots, some of the boots <laughs> I've worn for Renfest have have been of the female persuasion. But you can't tell because you know, I guess high high heels, but not high heels. But you know, do that piratey slash traveler. I've done a couple belts as like swords. That's about it. Everything else is pretty much, you know, shirts or shirts and vests or vests. Gotcha. Okay, so I will now turn it over to Christopher. I know you've used uh, unusual items for props, but have you ever used a um, costume in an unusual way or clothing in an unusual way in one of your movies? I don't know that we've ever done anything where the clothing itself is unusual, but one thing that is kind of surprising that people probably wouldn't realize is that um, one thing I found a great use for, and it's it's like a great cheap thing, uh, so for low-budget films like I make, it's very useful, is when you're doing science fiction and uh, you want to create basic uniforms or things like that, one of the most useful things in the world are scrubs pants. Ha! Okay. Like, like cheap pants used, you know, for scrubs. You can buy them for really cheap. They come in a lot of different, you know, sizes and, and colors and, and configurations. And you can actually sort of, uh, they, they look very space age, you know, because you don't want to use like sweats or something, right? But you don't necessarily want to have everyone wearing jeans or, or recognizable slacks with pockets. Weirdly, uh, scrubs have, have served me well. And every movie I've made that was science fiction, they're in there somewhere and they're often the same pairs. Uh, from one movie to the next. Uh, so you have like, you know, I made a movie called Attack the Moon Zombies, which takes place on a, on a moon base. And we had these sort of Star Trekian, uh, space 1999 outfits made. Uh, and all they did is we, we created these sort of tunics and someone made those. Uh, but then underneath, everyone's wearing scrub pants and, uh, uh, turtlenecks oh, underneath. Sweet. I've seen and Attack those, of the Moon Zombies, and I never noticed those were scrub pants. Well, and then we used them again for some of the uh, alien species in 
my follow-up film, Destination Outer, or the, the movie before that, which was Destination Outer Space, we used them there. Um, some of the, uh, you know, alien species, uh, we, you know, they're, they're wearing scrub pants. Uh, same thing with, uh, I made another movie called um, X the Fiend from Beyond Space. Same scrub pants. <laughs> wow. Okay. You heard it here first, guys. Any filmmakers out there, you know, wanting to do <laughs> spacey things? Scrub pants. Which you can find you them just about everywhere, huh? Actually. Well, and they're, you can order them for very cheap online, too. And that's, that's, that's what appealed to me because it's just like, okay, how do you get pants that don't necessarily look like anything recognizable uh, for cheap? Scrubs. Right. That was the way to go. Nice. I was also going to say, uh, you're also known for reusing a lot of sets, which sort of ties into this minute as well, seeing as we're in the kitchen, and it looks a little different than the last time we saw the kitchen. Oh, heck yeah, it does. And it is the same set. It is the same set. You can go back and look. Everything is just redressed and repainted blue, and there's stainless steel things everywhere. But when she goes to get the thing out of the giant fridge cabinet, that was where the window was, and the door's the same. I mean, yeah, it just re- it, they just redressed it. Well, it is the same house, so... Well, yeah, but, I mean, you could have cheated. They were talking about knocking down And you could have cheated too, so. and built two, you know, two sets to make it look really different, but, uh, nope, it's the same set, just repurposed. Gotcha. Well, and that's, that's a great way to save some money, I and mean, if you got the, the skeleton of one set, why not build the next one on top of it? Especially since it has, it's supposed to be the same spot, you know, uh, but refurnished, you know, refinished uh, to look more, you know, modern. It's a, it's a money-saving thing. That's the thing. When you do these, you know, films like this, you always have to be thinking of, because I, you know, I produce my films, too, so you have to think of the bottom line, even when it comes to stuff like that. I mean, when I write scripts, I will do it in such a way where I'll be trying to think of, okay, so we have this set for these scenes. What can I, you know, can I maybe write something that we could then build, build on top of that set? How can we, you know, start from one spot and, and work our way up to the more intricate sets what can we reuse? You know, we don't have so much space. How can we do that? And I even approach, you know, uh, writing scripts that way. It's just, it's efficient and it allows you to get things, you know, done in a timely and cheap manner. Cheap is good. <laughs> as long as it's not, Too cheap. as long as it's not bad cheap. You don't want bad cheap. Good cheap. Precisely. Before we uh, wrap up this minute, I did want to mention something kind of funny. Um, Adam and Barbara are talking about how unscary they are and how, you know, the the photographs did absolutely nothing to scare uh, Delia whatsoever. And Adam mentions he has a photo of Bigfoot. And I just have to throw this out there because I used to be a member of a screenwriters group. And I had a friend in that group who put a big twist on the fact that everybody's got photos of Bigfoot, right? Um, so he had a, a, an idea for a story where a paparazzi uh, really does meet Bigfoot. And Bigfoot steals the paparazzi's camera and then starts sending the paparazzi all these pictures and stuff. So he's getting pictures from Bigfoot, like turning it on its head instead of, you know, yeah. Anyway. I just thought that was really funny. So there's a shout out to my friend Corey, who may or may not even know we exist. I'll have to let him know that you know he needs to listen in. But some uh, friend, jeez. Bigfoot. Well, it was a long time ago. The screenwriter group was a long time ago. But Bigfoot. Who doesn't love Bigfoot? Anyone else got a Bigfoot story? Uh, I've seen Harry and the Hendersons several times. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You heard it here on the Beetlejuice Minute. Uh, so we'll see everybody tomorrow for minute number forty. Which um, is kind of an exciting minute, I'm just saying. Bye, everybody. 
Until next time, save us some popcorn and we'll see you soon at the Beetlejuice Minute.